Open with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 3. We'll read in a moment from verses 14 through 16. In the Bible in front of you, if you don't have one with you, we've provided a Bible, and it would be page 992. Ever feel like the church is weak, upside down, clumsy, awkward in this world? Maybe it's the things that we believe, and maybe it's a bit about those that we believe these things with. Hear this beautiful passage of scripture on the church. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. This is God's word. We've had a run of passages that have perplexed us at times, that have required some lifting. Passages, we might say, that that don't exactly sing, but they're needful for a church that will sing. Well, this passage is a passage that sings. Providential delays for a well-behaved church. Let's start there in verse 14. Paul hoped. He said, I hope to come to you. He hoped to come to Timothy. And he hoped to come soon. And he had good reasons for that, even urgent reasons for that. He wanted to ensure that the church was well. Presumably, much or all that he tells Timothy to do in this book, the charge that he gives to Timothy, would have been work he would have carried out on his own as an apostle if he could have gotten there on his own terms and on his own time. Charging certain persons not to teach speculative doctrine, getting gender roles in order and leading out in the appointment of qualified leaders. To come soon for these things, for the apostle, was a matter of urgency. And it was to Paul's mind what was best. But to God, it was best that Paul stay back. It was best, against Paul's own wishes and perhaps his prayers, that Paul was delayed. So if Paul was praying to make it to Ephesus soon in order to strengthen the church, then God answered that prayer with a delay in order to strengthen every church. Who knows what annoying or tragic matters kept Paul from getting there on his own timetable. He says, I hope to come to you soon. An unfulfilled hope, yet fulfilled in us. And so too our hopes are not unheard by our Lord, even when they are not fulfilled as we might wish. For we have this sacred book, we have this sacred letter, precisely because Paul's prayers to get there soon were not answered. Who knows what God is doing through our unexpected or even expected delays? That's a bit on the historical context. The literary context, he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you So that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. 
What we have here is a statement of Paul's purpose in writing. Even ahead of getting into this book before the series began, uh, became clear to me that this passage of ours this morning, verse 14 through 16, is a kind of an anchor in the middle of the book. You look out for these purpose statements. They provide a frame for everything else he says. There are at least two of them in the book and other indications. This is his purpose in writing. So what is a well-behaved church? He wants a well-behaved church. We don't exactly talk like that. So we'll meditate on this idea a bit before the sermon is out, a number of minutes here, but not in the immediate. We'll get to that. No one says, though, I'm looking for a well-behaved church. Do you know of a well-behaved church? (laughs) And yet no one wants to go to a, a poorly behaved church, an unhappy, unhealthy, grumpy, fussy church, petty church. Well, know what he means by considering what he has written, for he has written these things in order that they would be behaved as a church. It's a church where the doctrine is in order. The church and the classrooms and the hallways and shepherding groups are not a platform for every, every teaching someone might find is interesting. It's a church where the, the genders are properly related in a way that reflects the beauty of God's creation design. The doctrine piece was chapter one, and, and the gender ordering was, was chapter two. And it's a church where biblically qualified people are in biblically defined roles of leadership. And that was chapter three to this point, to, to verse 13. We'll spend just, we've spent two weeks on the subject of church leadership, elders and then deacons over the last two weeks. So a few words to sew that section up. We've learned much in the last two weeks from what Paul has written about elders and deacons, but let me draw your attention, helpfully I pray, to what he has not written. We learn from what he has not written as well. His concern in this letter for a healthy church is for the who of elders and deacons in our previous two sermons, and apparently precious little about the how-to. In fact, We almost know nothing of what deacons actually did ongoingly in the New Testament. We have that hint from chapter 6 in the book of Acts where some proto-deacons were established to take care of a very specific single need. We don't even really know what they were doing. And in terms of the elders, we know they were ministering the word and praying. We know they had to be able to teach. Paul's preoccupation is in the qualifications for the role, the who, and not the the how-to, whether that be how to order an elder team's business or how to order a church's schedule and calendar or how to organize the deacon's ministry of service. There's tremendous freedom we can conclude by way of observation in what we can't hear and see here for judgment calls in all these matters. That the church finds itself in different places And at different times, its leaders can do as they seem best. A church can do as it seems best. The church doesn't come with a program or style manual. And so we should be glad for that. For the church is beautifully, beautifully translatable into any place and time in the world. But what we do have are qualifications for its leaders. This is important for us as elders to remember. And it's important for you to remember Elders work often in the fuzzy and ambiguous realm of what we call pastoral prudence 
in judgment calls. And so pray for us. Two takeaways from those two weeks as we land our time on them. First, from this observation that a healthy church will remain fixed on what the gospel is and on the who of biblical roles, but flexible on the how-to. And another takeaway, and a reminder for you and for our elders and deacons, get this. The best leadership technique cannot overcome the obstacles presented by the presence of unbiblically qualified men at the table of the eldership or the toleration of slander and gossip and speculative teaching in the congregation. All of the tricks and finesse and skill cannot overcome disobedience on those points. But get this as well. Even the worst leadership technique cannot stop the spiritual work and capacity of a band of biblically qualified spiritual elders accompanied by men filled with the spirit in the deacon role and a church happy in her Lord and her leaders. I can say I've witnessed the truth in both of those statements in my years of pastoring and being a Christian. But thankfully, the spirit gifts the church with many gifts, including even at our own elder table, the gift of administration. So we don't have to be without either. We can have, so we pray, biblically qualified men and the gift of leadership among us. The who is more important than the how-to. So let's make sure we have that in proper order, friends. That's to tie things up on our two weeks of teaching on leadership in the church. From the church's teaching to the ordering of gender roles to the appointment of the right people, anticipating a delay, Paul says he writes that you may know how one ought to behave. But he does not stop there. He doesn't stop there. Lest we think that the church is good to go if she has these kinds of things in order, Paul zooms now way out to show us who the church is and to whom the church belongs. This is the heart, my friends, of a healthy church. It's the heartbeat of a healthy church, a church that knows who she is. And for that, we're given three pictures this morning. And a church that knows whose she is, to whom she belongs. And for that, we're given a three-part poem. This is apparently what we need. Paul wrote to Timothy. He wrote to Timothy to get a number of things across. And he wrote to Timothy to get this across. And so that Timothy would get it across to his people. And the Spirit inspired this letter and delayed Paul so that it would be written in order that you and I would get it this morning. So let's hear from God's word. A church that knows who she is. Let us be a church that knows who we are. Verse 15b. Here in verse 15, we have three different ways of talking about the church. Look at this. You know, it's helpful in leadership to repeat things, to use similar language over and over again. What's fascinating to me about the New Testament in each different book is how uniform in a respect it is in the way that it speaks of the church and how many different 
unformulaic ways we have with which to picture and understanding the church. The church is the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and the buttress of truth. It's like something from a different reality that words can't quite capture. It can't be reduced to a single image or two or three single images that capture it all. And so by listening long and hard and week in and week out, we find ourselves over time under the preaching of the word. And as we read the word, immersed in the worldview of the Bible and its vision, not of what the church needs to be in the first place, but of what the church actually is as the people of God. And so it is in knowing who she is, who we are, that we can become a more faithful expression of what the church is. Three pictures here. Three pictures, each with its own contribution to make to our understanding of the church. Three pictures which capture three separate movements, which I'll show you, crucial for the church and its life. Three pictures for the church in this world, often weak, often clumsy, always a little awkward, usually a little dysfunctional, frankly, since it is filled with recovering sinners like me. Here's the first picture. Loved ones, you are the household of God. You're the household of God. This is the inward movement of the church. It's inward movement. For some of you, the experience of of household is wonderful. For others of you, household as an experience, is tragic. Maybe you don't know what it is to be a part of a household. I imagine that's the case in some cases. I spoke this week with a a friend and public school teacher among us who asks his students each year to raise their hand if they, as a matter of regular occasion, sit down as a family to eat dinner. And increasingly over the years, less so and less so it is the case. Children are left to fend for themselves in seeking a meal. In fact, one year only recently, it was one child out of 10 in that room raised their hand. And several said they didn't know what he was talking about. Not everyone has a good experience of household. And those that don't may not even know what they're missing. Well, does the health of a household not turn on the head of the home? Steady, loving, present leadership can make a very great trial a safe place in the home still. And a rough and difficult leader, and dads, I say this to you, and and I remind myself of this, can make the best times sad. I know that from experience in my seat as a dad. Well, we here are not just a household We are the household of God. This is not the household of Trent, thank God, even though he does most of the yapping uh, week in, week out. This is not the household of the elder you know best, Steve, Dan, John, Jeff, Brad, or any of the rest, but the household of God, God, our Father who is in heaven, who has gathered to himself sons and daughters that wouldn't otherwise go together. But rich and poor, 
friends, educated and uneducated, male and female, old and young, Greek and Scythian, you and I are family. We're the household of God. We are brothers and sisters. Awkward, yes. You'll know you're in a church that has a bit of healthy New Testament church diversity when it's a little awkward. So I embrace it. Let's do that together. But family we are, and family we will be forever. So brothers and sisters, given that, let us be on our best behavior. Because we're led and loved by the very best father. And this really is the context for how Christians think about behavior. Is it not? The head of our home. Let's hang out there for a bit on on that word behavior. Many a Christian in church has misbehaved badly in its mishandling of this idea of behavior. For some, Christianity is behavior. Well, they may not put it that way, but it's behaviorism. But as Paul writes in chapter 1, the law was laid down for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, and perjurers. Pretty bad behavior all around. And what makes it bad? Well, he says, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. So behavior is in accordance with doctrine, good or bad. Christian behavior is in accordance with sound doctrine, the doctrine of the only glorious and blessed God, the beauty of God for the blessing of his people and his truth. So for some, behavior is Christianity. Oh, but it is not the sum of Christianity. For some, it's a, it's a bad idea for pastors to tell the church to behave in this way or that. And if that's all a pastor is doing, that's behavior modification merely, and indeed, that's a bad thing. But Paul said that this glorious gospel of the blessed God, sound doctrine that has behavior that accords with it, that changes our lives, is his sacred trust, and he's entrusted that to Timothy. And so it's the the job of those who lead the church to, to herald the gospel itself and all that it entails, the gospel that transforms us even as it forgives us. Some care about behavior on the outside, but don't care about the heart on the inside, our little behavior maker box. That's what the heart is. It's this little box inside you that produces behavior. It's your, your motive box. And anything that comes out of you comes from inside that. Well, some like to emphasize what you can see and hear and, and watch in a person, but have little interest in the inside. And all of us will will be tempted into this because we don't like the harder, deeper things of the heart. They're also more ambiguous to measure and to discern and to even incorrect and certainly to change. But remember Paul's other purpose statement from chapter one when he said, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. I take him to be saying about the same things or two sides of the same coin when he says he writes so that you may know how to behave in the household of God. Some only care about 
your behavior because they're proud people and we can all tend to this. Maybe they even think behavior is how we gain acceptance before God. But Paul has said himself, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost. That list of great sins we read only a moment ago, oh, you and I participate in all of those in heart or in dealings. But there is forgiveness for sinners, great forgiveness for great sinners. For it's a trustworthy saying that Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Then some, it seems, for them, like good behavior is important, but they just don't like you. (laughs) And maybe you've been tempted to this before where you're really concerned about someone's behavior. You don't care about them at all. There's someone in the church you've seen for 15 years and um, you've never talked with them, but but one day you really don't like them or something bugs you about them and you're not even interested in getting to know them. You just wish that they would change what they're doing, whatever it is. More interested in the behavior than in, in the person. But remember Paul's tender words to Timothy. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. Oh, this letter that we're reading, it's concerned with behavior, but it loves the reader. And the Holy Spirit that inspired these words has loved us all in it. So we need to talk about behavior to get on the off-ramp from this excursus here, but we need to talk about it the right way, lest it undermine the heart of the matter. We belong to the household of God, and we're led and loved by a faithful father, and that changes everything about us. And it's our privilege, brothers and sisters, to treat one another as family. And so Paul wrote, and so we read this letter in order that we would know how to behave in the household of God. Our family recently got a dog. Uh, I had to teach the dog how to behave. We're mostly there. We in the Hunter family don't poop and pee on the floor in our home. That one's for you, kids. It is an honor for that dog to be a part of the Hunter family, and it is an honor for us to be a part of God's household. And so we don't defecate on the floor around here, folks. Please, don't do it. Don't defecate in my office. Don't defecate in my inbox. Follow the scriptures and all the things that you say and do. We don't slander one another, but we go to one another. We don't ignore one another, but we weep with those who weep and we bear one another's burdens. This is part of what it is to be the household of God. What a beautiful thing that we are not left in the cold, is it not? But we have one another. And that means every other person here has us. And has you, and I have you. We don't grow embittered toward one another, but we forgive. We aren't patched together as a church in how we're structured by life stage, by affinity group, by tribe or social silo, but we are knit together, we pray, in love. We want to be a people as the household of God, as family, with all of our differences that talk more to one another than we do about one another. Older people who talk more to younger people than with one another about them. And younger people that talk more to older people than with one another about them. And it goes in every direction and across every difference that we know in our church. It's a part of being God's household. Something that we have worked hard on here over the years and that we will always need to work hard on. I was so encouraged months back to hear one of our seniors, just to highlight this difference of age among us, one of our senior couples raving on the discipleship efforts 
of the young families in their shepherding group. Just raving, so happy, their heart full that these young families were discipling and disciplining their children and raising them up in the Lord and verbalizing that and and speaking that to them. Oh, how encouraging it is to know that we've got the, the cheerleading and the, the affirmation and the encouragement and the confidence of those who are 15, 20, 30, and maybe even 40 years up on us, speaking as a young person. Oh, we may look confident and busy and harried, and there's a bit of that, but we need a whole lot of encouragement, and thank you for those of you who offer it. It's a huge blessing. Our church needs it. Our household. Alternatively, I was so encouraged, even this past week, visiting with a couple who went on and on at the dinner table about how much they love to mingle and fellowship with the seniors in our church and in their shepherding group, how much they would never trade that, how good it is for their kids and their whole family to be knit together like fabric into the lives and the affections and the emotions and the trials of men and women 15, 20, and 30 years up on them. And so speaking to this generational difference, which is a part of being a household, let's consider the needs of those a good distance from us. So young, young people, young couples, um, consider the anxieties and the difficulties of those who are older, some who may feel left out to dry, some who widowed are lonely, some who may wonder what others think, some who may feel regret over, over parts of their life that they would have done differently. They need encouragement, and they need a wind at their back as they face the future, and they need stirring up in love. And those who are older think about the, the anxieties of, of what it is to be a young mom or, or a busy dad and encourage and stir up our church to love however you can, whenever you can. Let's, be, let's outdo one another in showing love to one another. A lot of this is going on. I mean only to encourage it and to highlight it. And how encouraged I am along a, difference, a different difference when wealthy members secretly meet the needs of those on harder times. I could go on. Friends, it is an honor to be a part of this household. It's not cold in here. It's warm in here. I have a friend who recently took a pastorate at a a church in another state. I'm not sure there were invitations into the homes of those congregants uh, for welcome. And I will tell you that you mauled us, and I'm thankful for that. It was a sign of health, a sign of your warmth, and a sign of your eagerness for this church to be happy and healthy and well-led, so thank you. Well, when you see kids getting along, and when the world sees men and women of varying ages getting along and encouraged, there's always an explanation for that. In the home, there's an explanation when kids get along. It's leadership in the home, which leads us to our second picture, the life source of our inward life as a church You are God's household friends and you are the assembly of the living God. You're the assembly of the living God. Assembly, another way to translate the word church. And so we are not a church. We are not an assembly 
of a profound idea. We're not an assembly of a, a proven method for, for organizing and going about life. We're not the assembly of a powerful movement. We're not the assembly of a people who have a lot in common and tend to get along. We're not the assembly of these things. We are, friends, the assembly of the living God. And this is the upward movement of the church. So there's a horizontal inward movement in the church's life. And there's an upward vertical movement. I caught an article in the New York Times this week. The positive death movement comes to life. Death is a a morbid subject and every generation will deal with it differently. But some, having resolved that since it can't be avoided, I believe we ought to embrace it even as a good. There are death cafes where you can learn more and talk about death. There's an even an, uh, a We Croak app. I suppose there, if it's free, there will be some downloads of the We Croak app. Uh, this is interesting. Uh, that will send you five messages a day to remind you that you're going to die. That was apparently uh, firstborn of a Bhutanese folklore saying that to be happy, one ought to contemplate death at least five times a day. Here's from the article. The app on iOS or Android could not be simpler. Ad-free. It is there strictly to remind you that the end is near. Its message accompanied by alternatively somber and uplifting homilies. The grave has no sunny corners or the motivating. Begin again the story of your life. The words come from a variety of sources, including work by Emily Dixon, Pablo Neruda, Henry David Thoreau, uh, Charles Bukowski, Pablo, they mentioned that one twice, Lao Tzu, and Margaret Atwood. The only problem with all of those words is that they can only remind you of death, even if they help you redeem the time that you have left. None of them can actually redeem you from death. They can remind you that life is short, but they cannot give you life. They are all still dead ends. And many, if not all of those authors, themselves dead. But friends, when we assemble together every Lord's Day in this room, there are signs of life, even life eternal, signs of life in the singing of God's people, signs of God's life in our praying, signs of new life every time we baptize someone into our assembly, the church, baptism being the initiation rite into the assembly, the sign of entry into Jesus' kingdom, signs of ongoing life as we share in the Lord's Supper together as a church, signs of life as we pray as we were led, by Bill earlier this morning. Signs of life when we read the book of life, scripture, and signs of life as we assemble under the preaching of his word, a double-edged sword, living and active, even now. And signs of life when we guard the church's life and define the assembly through church discipline, putting someone out of the assembly. For as Hebrews 3 says, but Christ is faithful over God's house, household, as a son, And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast the confidence in our boasting and our hope. This assembly is the sign of the life of God in the world. Which is why the apostle Peter could write to Christians in 1 Peter 2. As you come to him, 
a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are a living house. You are a living stone. And as we come together, it's as though the building, the temple of God is being built. So that as we are individually temples of the Holy Spirit, when we come together, there is a special way in which Christ dwells among us. An inward movement to the life of the church. And an upward vertical movement. We are the assembly, the people of the living God. Which leads to a third movement, a third image He says, you are the pillar and the buttress of truth. The pillar and the buttress of truth. Of what? Well, if you lived in Ephesus, you would know what a pillar and a buttress are. Because you would live under the shadow of the temple of Artemis or Diana with its 127 pillars, which held 18 meters into the sky, a giant marble roof that would project its majesty to all around. The pillars which held the building high and other buildings, a buttress or supports which hold it together. A building like this reached in its view a great distance and it attracted to itself people from a great distance. It was a display for drawing. And this is the church's outward movement. An outward movement. Of course, we're not talking about the building here. There's a California neighborhood all upset that a billionaire couple is buying up their neighborhood church to make a mansion. I don't know uh, the story of the church, if it folded or moved. But I do know that the presence of a church building doesn't do anything for your community. Uh, Little signs and protests like, you know, save our church. Like, what? I don't know what happened there, but like, you can't just have a neighborhood church. Someone can buy it if they want. Hopefully, the church didn't fold. Hopefully, they moved. You need only to look to Europe, though, to see that sacred structures built with meticulous care, even over many, many years, with theological intent and design, don't transmit themselves the faith. No, the church is a people, and the people are a pillar and a buttress of truth. Now, on this topic of this verse, a needed sidebar. This will be more relevant for some than others. And it might save some of you from apostasy. I've seen it happen twice, almost turning on this verse. Hear this clearly. The church does not create the truth. The church carries the truth. If you grew up in a Catholic church or consider yourself a Catholic now and are checking us out, this may be a familiar verse and phrase of scripture to you. When the Catholic church speaks about the church's authority alongside the authority of scripture, it roots that way of understanding authority, its parallel authority, in this idea, which it gets from this passage, that isn't there. That the church creates the truth, do you see? So that if the church creates scripture, then the church can keep creating. 
And so we have popes who can speak ex cathedra across the years. And so the Catholic Church speaks of its tradition and scripture because the church creates the truth. You follow me? We need only, however, to look to Ephesians 2, which says this. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Same language here. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Similar language here. The buttress language could be foundation. It refers to support. It could just well, in terms of imagery, refer to the supports along the side of a building or another kind of support. But even if in the context of 1 Timothy, buttress or support refers to the foundation, the context, not only of the passage itself, but of other things Paul has said, will reveal that the church does not create the truth. No, this household is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. What does that mean? The apostles uh, issued by Jesus and the prophets, those other scripture writers who ran closely with the apostles. Think Luke, think Mark. I could make the case for that at another time. In any case, the foundation is the apostles and the prophets. The foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The truth creates the church. The church is built on the foundation of the word of God. The word of God creates the church. The church carries the truth. The context of 1 Timothy 3 is that of a pillar and a buttress that hold forth the word. It's a missiological context. It has to do with the outward movement of the church, not the creation of the church. So the church creates the truth creates the church. The church carries the truth. Don't forget it. As the buttress, let's consider both of these images. The support, the church protects the truth, and that means it holds it secure. The how-to of ministry may change with time and place, as we've discussed, but the truth does not change. There's much about the church that will look different in time and place, but this will not be different. As the pillar, the church projects the truth. That's what a pillar does. It holds high the roof, and it projects the truth. We do not protect the truth of the gospel from the world, ultimately. But we, the church, the pillar and the buttress of truth, the household of God, the church of the living God in this world, the pillar and the buttress of truth, we protect the truth of the gospel for the sake of the world. We don't protect the truth from the world merely. That's where you might get a fortress mentality to church. We might as well build the church underground. No, we protect the truth for the world, for the world's sake. And so together we call men and women to turn from these vain things to the living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them as we read in the preaching of Acts. And even as we gather, we pray for those who are not believing among us. We pray for you if you are among us and you don't yet believe, that the secrets of your heart would be disclosed, as Scripture says. And so falling on your face, you would worship God 
and declare that God is really among us. This is the church of the living God. And in this household, as you mingle with us and as you observe us, you are witnessing, you are seeing, as it were, a spiritual building held up by a pillar and a buttress that is here because God wants you to see it and he's calling on you to come. The church is the pillar and the buttress of truth. That's an inward movement. That's an upward movement. And it's an outward movement. Got to have all three. You can't have the outward movement and neglect the upward and, and forget who God is. You can't have the outward movement and not the inward movement, for it's the inward movement, the health and the life of the church, which is itself the brightness of the light of the church, the world. That's what the pillar and the buttress are holding up. That's how we hold it up, the truth, that is. So we can't have the outward or, or the, without the inward or the upward. And we can't be all about the inward and forget about the upward or the outward. For we are here, left here, precisely for the world as God's pillar and buttress of his gospel. So we need all three directions, the inward, the upward, and the outward. Now, before we proceed to verse 16, let's consider for a moment how encouraging these words, even so far, would have been to the, to the believers at the church at Ephesus. Ephesus was not a place that really appreciated its churches. It wasn't really glad that those were there. It was a very religiously tolerant place, but groups like Christians that didn't participate in the worship of Roman gods, the Ephesian gods, uh, were untolerated. A famous incident highlights this that I want to point out to you. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book, the book of Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. The church was formed there by the word. And it claimed that the God of Scripture was the living God, the one true and living God. And that Diana or Artemis, that the temple was devoted to there and around which life revolved, was no God at all. Which would have a certain effect on the economy. For example, the idol makers. If this thing about Jesus catches on, no one's going to buy our idols anymore. And so the town pitched a fit. It went like this, starting in verse 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that the gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, the people, that is, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together in the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him, 
And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in, assembly by the way, was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. That's Ephesus. Maybe that's what Paul expected this unimpressive church to have echoing in their heads when he wrote this in verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Not of Artemis, not of Caesar, not of Diana, of Christ, who is manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. And so you can turn back to 1 Timothy 3. You see, a healthy church will know who it is. But a healthy church can't know who she is unless she knows where she comes from, how she's even possible, unless she knows to whom she belongs. And so we'll say that a healthy church is a church that knows who she is and a church that knows whose she is. Verse 16. Because out of the idol-worshiping population of that city, God established his household, he gathered his assembly, and he is building his spiritual house so the world will see what he can do. How can God make sinners his household? How can sinners be made godly? What is the true source of a truly transformed inward to outward behavior? Here it is. No, here he is. In a song, no less. For this truth is better sung than said. What we have here is a poem, even an ancient hymn. There's a few different ways to see it. The way I see that's most conviction, convicting is three sets of two lines, each pair reaching all the way from heaven to earth. Hear it? He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels and proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world and taken up into glory. And so this little church in this uproarous town in this little part of the world was a part of something huge. With this early church and with the church throughout the world, we here this morning where we are confessed the Christ who is sent from heaven and earth. He was manifested in the flesh. This is his incarnation. Friends, we have figured out all kinds of ways to put buildings together, but no one has figured out how to put people together from every tribe and language and nation. But you and I are fellow strangers and citizens. And how do we explain that? How do we explain the reconciliation of a people dead to sin to the living God of heaven? Border issues were in the news this week. Countries have their complex issues when it comes to the border. In deciding who can come and discerning who's able to stay. 
what to do with those who come illegally. There is one border that is impenetrable, and it is the border between heaven and earth. Thankfully, that much is clear. And what can be done about that border, that impenetrable border? Where does the passage for you and me begin from this place to that, to reconciliation with God? Well, it starts apparently in the womb of a virgin. He was manifested in the flesh with a man who grew up, who ate, who drank, who felt the heat of the sun, who thirsted for water, who felt pain. And then we need to advance to the empty tomb just outside Jerusalem, for in his resurrection from the dead, he was vindicated by the Spirit. Or as Paul says in Romans 1, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So we confess the Christ who came from heaven to earth, who ascended to heaven from earth. And in between, he lived a perfect life and he died for the sins of his people. And he was raised from the dead for our justification so that we could be welcome across the border into the very presence of God. And so you and me, to, G, to, to you and me, Jesus says through scripture today, come to me all who are weary and I will give you rest. The church, the embassy of heaven here is open. We confess the Christ who is sent and we confess the Christ who is seen by heaven and earth. This really happened and heaven and earth can testify. The angels saw him at his birth and they sang. They saw him in the wilderness and they ministered to him. They saw him in the garden and they strengthened him. They were there when he was raised and one sat on that stone after rolling it away. And they were there when he ascended to speak and to explain to the disciples. And he was proclaimed to all from the nations gathered at Jerusalem at Pentecost. And then to Jerusalem and to Judea and to Samaria and to Athens and to Ephesus and to the ends of the earth. And to Salt Lake City and to Moore and to Malden and to Greer and Taylor's and Greenville and Easley and Traveler's Rest. Christ is not proclaimed in the buildings we build. Christ is proclaimed in the preaching of his cross by his people in the world. We confess the Christ who is sent and we confess the Christ who is seen. And third, we confess the Christ who is received by heaven and earth. He was believed on in the world by Peter, James, and John, and Paul, and Andrew, and Timothy, and by me, and by you. He was taken up into the glory. There's a lot of talk these days about the next era of space exploration. Elon Musk leading a bit of that charge with SpaceX. And the president just gave orders for a, a branch of the military, the Space Force there's a 3D company that plans to print 3D satellites in outer space. Awesome. Apparently, uh, you can make satellite parts 10 times lighter if they don't have to go through the rumble of a rocket launch from the Earth. So that may be a way to get some things done up there. Should have thought of that. Humans, they say, for our survival, need to get off the Earth and into space, which is all very interesting, and I welcome it, and others to go first. But there is one who has gone first, and he has gone before us and ahead of us, and he has left the earth, and he sits above the universe. Jesus, taken into glory, received by his Father, 
our future in his hands. So my friends, this, this is the heart of a healthy church. We've got to get the, all the other stuff right if we're to be faithful and obedient to the Lord. Oh, we've got to be vigilant about guarding the door into the church, guarding the door into eldership and into deacon, to deacon it, the deacon, yeah, deaconate, deaconship, whatever. We've got to be careful with the question of gender roles and teaching in mixed groups, which we addressed a number of weeks ago. We should dress modestly, ladies. Men, we need to pray and not be angry with one another over dumb things. We are so quickly so petty, are we not? This passage, these three verses, if we swallow them right, we'll sing them, and we won't be caught up arguing about petty things. No. A church that despite her weakness and clumsy position in this world knows who she is and whose she is. Paul prayed and hoped to strengthen the church in Ephesus. Instead, he strengthened the church everywhere and even here. Great, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the truth that we believe is for believing and that it is for godliness and that it is for singing. In fact, we thank you that this is truth that we can't help but sing for it is so beautiful. We thank you that you've made us to sing and we thank you that we can. Father, we pray that our song even now about going to the world for the cause would mean that we actually do that. And we pray that this gospel, the gospel that reconciled us to you, that created this household of ours, the church of the living God that is assembled here in Christ's name, that this singing itself would be proof that you indeed are the true and living God. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.